Happy end of the heat wave. Um, I believe that last month was the hottest June on record, um, which is like the past 150 years. And this July is supposed to be another record-breaking month in terms of how hot it is. Um, so basically, we're all doomed. But I'm happy to be here, nonetheless. Um, as Tim was saying, we went to Divinity School together. And it was kind of a frustrating experience to be back in the theological mind space. Um, but I'm um, glad to be here. Uh, as Tim said, uh, we're in the middle of a series on relationships. And last week at our welcome table, uh, we talked about how friends um, and the role of being honest with each other and maybe even rebuking each other is part of friendship. And so um, if indeed my sermon does suck, I do hope that you will tell me honestly. Um, but also, I'm OK with you lying to me. So um, that's cool, too. Um, when Tim asked me to preach, he uh, asked me if I want to do friends or family. And I said family for some reason. And my initial instinct was to, um, was to watch the Fast and Furious movies as inspiration. Um, if you've seen any of the eight movies in the franchise, um, it's all about chosen family and fast cars and blowing things up. But, um, but don't worry, I googled family sermon ideas and have some ideas for you. Um, I actually want to read one more passage. Um, and it's from the theologian Karl Barth. And he says, the basic thing to be remembered is that the relationship between one's own and foreign languages can only be one which involves a centripetal motion, circular motion. In it, we are always on the way from one point to another. We thus see already that the concept of one's own people is not a fixed but a fluid concept. The one who is really in his own people among those near to him is always on the way to those more distant, to other peoples. And Karl Barth, um, he was a Swiss theologian. He wrote a lot in between the First World War and the Second World War. And he was part of this movement called the Confessing Church in Germany. And they, their uh, purpose of being was to oppose the, German, the Nazi Germany movement to try to um, unify all the Protestant churches in Germany to be, to be pro-Nazi and to be a church state, essentially. And so. Um, Initially, I kind of brushed off Karl Barth as a, another old white guy that wrote too much. Um, but after really kind of digging into him a little bit more, I think he's someone to take seriously. Um, so let's head back to the parable. Um, the immediate context of the parable is that Jesus is dining with tax collectors and sinners, whatever sinners means. And there are Pharisees and scribes nearby being a little salty. Um, so I think the image here is kind of Jesus is sitting with people around him, and he's talking to them. But really, he's having a conversation with the Pharisees and scribes that are kind of far off in the corner being kind of weird and creepy. Um, and so the audience, to me, is pretty clear that the parables are for the Pharisees and scribes. And so Jesus shares three parables. Um, all of them are about something being lost and then being found. But the parable of the prodigal son, as we normally call it, um, he goes into a lot more detail. And the parable starts off with the father and two sons. 
and immediately we have family dysfunction. For the Pharisees and the scribes who are studied Jewish people, they are automatically thinking Cain and Abel, sons of Adam, and we know that uh, Cain killed Abel. They're also thinking of Jacob and Esau, sons of Isaac. And if you're familiar with that story, uh, they're twins and they're very different people and their whole family history is about um, deception and trying to one-up each other. And there's even a divide that one son is closer to the father, one son is closer to the mother, and they actually pit each other against each other. And so um, I think for the scribes, they're on edge already, and the Pharisees. So it's fair to say that Jesus is kind of He's coming at them hard. He's not pulling any punches. And many of us know what happens next. The son asks for his inheritance a little early, which is given to him. And not, not too long after, goes far away and squanders his money. Then a famine hits and he hires himself out to a job that doesn't pay very much. Not enough that he would consider eating the food of pigs. And the son finally comes to his senses and decides to go home because there's a famine and he might die. But um, on his way home, he prepares a speech to tell his father, but the father, when he sees his son, runs and embraces him, gives him a bunch of nice stuff, and throws a huge feast for him. A common interpretation of this parable is that the son represents us as humans, as fallen creatures, or in the context of the text, the tax collectors and sinners, and that if we repent our wrongdoing, then the Father, being God, will forgive us and welcome us back into the family. But let's set that interpretation to the side and not return to it, actually. <laughs> um, what we know from this part of the parable is that the younger son really wants to leave for some reason. We don't know exactly why, but I think we can all kind of relate to a time when we wanted to leave home. Maybe your family is a little racist or homophobic. Maybe they love watching Fox News. But we at least get the sense that he's been thinking about this for a while, and he finally got the courage or was fed up enough to leave. The story doesn't say much else, but the son ends up wasting all of his money. And even when the son chooses to work on an undesirable farm job, it's really only the famine uh, that causes him to go home. Uh, there was a study done on this parable where they asked the participants to kind of uh, summarize the parable back to, back to them. And for the participants that were from kind of Western, more developed countries, they always remembered to include that the son was wasteful, that he always squandered his wealth. But when they asked kind of people from less developed countries to repeat this parable, all of them included the fact of the famine. And for the Western people and more developed, they usually neglected to mention the famine. I thought that was interesting. I think it's natural for us to be critical of the son here. Um, but if we think about it, his behavior is probably really not all that different from his father, right? When the son comes home, the father doesn't even let his son tell him what happened to him, but automatically gives him a bunch of nice stuff and throws a big party and even forgets to invite the older brother to this party. Um, I think we have kind of a 
we see a pattern of kind of wasteful behavior in this family. Maybe the apple doesn't really far, fall far from the tree. The parable continues to focus on the older brother who comes home from the field to find this party unexpectedly. So he has to ask a servant what's going on, and the servant tells him that his brother has come home and that they've, they've killed a fattened calf as part of the celebration. And for the Jewish audience of this parable, the fattened calf would have perked up their ears because they know the fattened calf is only killed for a special occasion. So the older brother, I imagine, is rightly, rightfully thinking to himself in Aramaic, what the fuck is going on? Um, he's angry and he refuses to go in. The father comes out and pleads with him and asks him to come, come in, but the son cuts him off and gives him his own diatribe of, I've worked really hard. Maybe the elder son wanted to leave home too, but felt like he couldn't. There were too many obligations and expectations for him. The Pharisees, no doubt, would have identified themselves with the elder brother. They did everything right and received no recognition. They were bitter. Uh, when I went to school for college, um, I decided to stay in state and go to a public state school um, because it was free. And on the weekends, uh, I drove home five-hour round trip to work at my parents' store. So on either Friday night or Saturday morning, I would get in my car, drive two and a half hours from Athens, Georgia to the middle of nowhere, Georgia, and work, and then Sunday morning go to church, and then drive back to school. Um, I think the hardest part of that for me was that I didn't get to spend time with my friends on the weekend. Um, and in contrast, my sister, um, she went to an out-of-state college at a time when our family didn't have a lot of money. And I was like, what are you doing? Why would you do that? It seems kind of selfish. Um, and so she didn't have to come home on the weekends to work. She got to stay on the weekends and party with her friends. Um, she was in the marching band, so I know she partied. Um, <laughs> but uh, nevertheless, I was bitter. Um, I am happy to tell you that my sister and I are actually quite close these days. Um, it took us a while to get there, actually, but um, I think her having kids has helped a lot as well. Um, I think it's natural for us to want to place ourselves in this parable, uh, but actually I want us to kind of resist that urge for the moment. When I look at this parable, I see a broken family when unhealthy relational patterns. We have brothers that don't like each other, a father that can't communicate with his sons, and kind of resorts to offering them money to appease them. For better or worse, I think we all have these automatic patterns of behavior when we're with our family. Uh, whenever my wife and I, we go to visit my family in Georgia, it drives her crazy because when, I go, when we go there, I automatically do any task that's asked of me. Um, I can't say no to my family. And worse yet, when it's time to eat because we want to satisfy everyone and have all their preferences honored, everyone goes hungry. It's great. Um, I chose this parable because I think it's a calling to rethink the meaning of family, or a better way of putting it would be to 
reframe what we expect family to be. Often we tend to think of family both biological and chosen as boundaries. We say, this is my family and that is your family. This is how my family likes to do things or this is how we've always done it. There are systems of behavior and expectations. I don't mean to say this in a negative sense necessarily, but I think Jesus in this parable is trying to shake things up a little bit. My opinion on the parable with kind of a M. Night Shyamalan twist is that Jesus is the prodigal son. Jesus is the one that leaves his family and broke protocol by going into the far country. Yet, the result is that there's always a huge celebration for him and a feast for everyone to enjoy. And I think that's why the fattened calf plays such an interesting role in the story, especially for the older brother. His anger is not so much that his brother has come home and was welcomed, but that there was a huge celebration. It's important to note that in the chapter 14, right before this, um, Jesus has drawn a really big crowd, and he says a lot of interesting things like, if you don't hate your family, then you can't be my disciple. Um, I recognize that family is a tricky subject. Some of us come from good families, some of us don't. Some of us have been rejected by our families. Maybe you came out of the closet or you married someone of a different race. Or maybe your political views make your family friends uncomfortable. Some of us don't have family at all and are looking for one. I think the, I think the challenge here is a bit of a paradox. I think Bart summarizes it well. The one who is really in his own people among those near to him is always on the way to those more distant to other peoples. In order to be close to your family is to consider who is not there and to leave, both literally and metaphorically. I consider myself to be quite close to my family and I think that's a good thing. But honestly, sometimes I know that I'm not who I want to be when I'm with them. The response to that, I believe, is that when you are the person you are called to be, uh, there will be people that want to join you as family. Uh, there's a Netflix show called Chef's Table. And I, when I first started watching this, I really liked it. Um, the basic premise of the show is that there are these chefs that have been trained in kind of the classical conditions of French and Italian cooking or Japanese cooking. But it's only when they've gone away from that tradition have they become really famous and Michelin-starred chefs. Um, they had to embrace their own authenticity of some sort to really become successful. It's very inspiring, it's very well shot. Um, but the reason that I've kind of fallen away from the show or chosen not to like it is because all these chefs own fine dining restaurants where it costs anywhere from three to $500 to dine there to experience this authenticity, a boundary to most of us, I assume. And what does it mean to have a table that only a few can dine at? Seems like something that the Pharisees would enjoy. To end with Bart, I just want to repeat his 
Last sentence again. The one who is really in his own people, among those near to him, is always on the way out to those more distant, to other peoples. Thank you.